Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey, music nerds, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be here, and um, it's great to be bringing you this month's episode. It's been really busy over here at the studio, and also um, I've been touring a lot, so it's been a little hard to find time, but I'm managing to keep the show going, so I'm pretty happy about that, and um, thank you again, everybody who supported the show, both with emails and support in general and financial support as well. I really appreciate it. Okay, before we get going here today, I just want to remind you, I I announced this last month, but I will remind you again because it's coming up uh, this week. And that is a live broadcast of our first ever live broadcast of Music Makers and Soul Shakers will be happening at the Elnora Guitar Festival at the Cranert Center in Champaign, Illinois, just a couple hours south of Chicago. So if you're anywhere in the area or if you're coming to the Cranert Center to go to the Elnora Guitar Festival, which is a really incredible event, I hope some of you are. Uh, please come and watch the live taping. My guest is going to be the incredible Molly Tuttle. And the date is this Friday, September the 6th, 2019, that is. It's at 2.45 p.m. It is free of charge. And the Cranert Center has a a bunch of venues within the building. Uh, I think there's five or six of them. And this is going to be in the Studio Theater. So it's the Cranert Center Studio Theater this Friday, September the 6th at 2.45 p.m. It's free. Come on in. You can be part of the studio audience while I have a conversation with Molly Tuttle. Uh, I thought it might be time to break up the seemingly endless stream of guitar players I've had on the show in the last while. Did you notice? Are you sick of guitar players? I don't know. I'm not. Uh, It has been a lot of guitar players, so who better to break that up with than to bring on one of the great bass players in the recording scene today and live music scene, Mr. Dennis Crouch. Many of you will know Dennis from his work on so many amazing T-Bone Burnett records, many of which we've discussed to great length on this show. And Dennis is a bit of the missing link. We've had Jay Belleros on the show. We've had Greg Lease. We've had Joe Henry. You know, people involved in that scene, Ryan Freeland. People involved in that scene that are involved in these records and with these players. But uh, Dennis Crouch has been the bass player on a great deal of of these projects. And um, it's very exciting to have him on the show. Uh, Again, thank you to everyone who's been listening and spreading the word by telling others and your friends about the show and writing reviews on iTunes. If you enjoy the show, go write a a review of it on iTunes. It really helps. It does. And we could use it. 
So go do that. It's easy. All episodes of this podcast are brought to you from here at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. The Hen House is my facility. I'm located about 10 miles south of Nashville, actually. It's where I produce and record and mix albums for artists from all over the world. If you would like to get in touch with me about the podcast or working on some music or whatever, I would love to hear from you. Drop me a line at steve at thehenhousestudio.com. Now, on to this month's episode. As I said, Dennis Crouch has been the bass player on so many of the great records that I've been excited about in the past 15 years, really probably more than anyone else. He's been T-Bone Burnett's go-to guy for years now, and for really good reason. Dennis has an incredible touch, tone, and groove, coupled with an incredibly deep understanding of the emotional elements of a song that make his style so appealing to me and many of you. He's been the wingman of Jay Belleros, one of the great drummers of all time, one of our favorites here on this show, of course, uh, on countless projects from, uh, of course, the Robert Plant, Alison Krauss collaboration from whatever that was, 15 years ago or 10 years, 10 years ago, I guess, to albums for Greg Allman, Diana Krall, the sound, a lot of soundtracks like um, Walk the Line and Cold Mountain, so many records. Uh, T-Bone Burnett solo records, of course, Elvis Costello records, tons of great recordings. Anyway, these days, Dennis is also um, spending a fair chunk of his time touring with Sarah Bareilles, uh, who has a brand new record out, also produced by T-Bone Burnett, that is very cool, and you should check that out if you haven't heard that one. But uh, anyway, Dennis maintains a, a really busy studio life as well. He's based here in Nashville. And I will never forget meeting him at a party once where there was some jamming going on and Dennis, Mike Bubb, who's been on the show, and Edgar Meyer were all there, all playing upright bass together at once. And it sounded amazing. Each guy was finding a way to play with the other and not get in the way and have fun and groove. And that's not easy to do, I will tell you that right now. Um, anyway, Dennis loves doing that and he has a lot of experience interestingly, doing the two bass player thing with T-Bone Burnett, and we're going to talk about that today. Anyway, I met uh, Dennis that day at this party, and recently um, I uh, had him over here at the studio for a session, and um, I asked Dennis if he would drop by to talk, and he was into it. And I also asked him if he would mind bringing his bass along to show us a few things, and he luckily agreed to that too. Uh, he was really generous with his time, and um, was really happy to get into the process of making music. So we ended up talking for hours about all kinds of things. So this interview will be broken up into two solid parts for your listening pleasure. This week is part one, and a week from today you will um, get access to part two, and that's the part in which he brings out the bass to show us all how it's done. So please share it around, get the word out, tell a friend, and my conversation with Dennis Crouch will be up in just a minute. All right, now we need to take care of just a little bit of business before we get going. I want to tell you how you can get behind the show and support it. There's a bunch of ways to do it. Go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a comment, a good comment preferably, and spread the word. Tell all your friends. Uh, you can also financially support the podcast with a one-time donation, which is great, or by contributing monthly through our Patreon site. 
All that information is on my website at stevedawson.ca. You go to the podcast page, and right at the top are the two ways to contribute to the show. So if you want to consider doing that, that's a big help. Uh, Also, this year we have t-shirts and maybe some other swag a little bit later as the season progresses. That's also at the same website, stevedawson.ca, podcast page. It's all right there at the top. Any of those ways that you feel inclined to help out the show would be greatly appreciated. And lastly, a word from this week's sponsors, Union, Tube, and Transistor. They have some new products coming down the line. First of all, they're doing a killer new guitar signal splitter called the GBX95. It allows you to split your guitar to up to 6 amps plus a DI, which is actually way harder to do than it should be. Very handy for recording multiple guitar amps. Next, they're about to release their 343 guitar amp. It features a very unique 10 and 12 inch speaker switching feature. You can run one or both speakers for tonal options. And finally, their lab compressor pedal is a little optical compressor and is killer both in front of a guitar amp or as a piece of outboard studio gear. I use one pretty much all the time. Head on over to uniontone.com to find out more. And now here is part one of my conversation with Dennis Crouch. Somebody like you and Jay, which is funny because you guys are, in my mind, like one of the great rhythm sections of the last 20 years. And, <laughs> and, but there's like nothing out there on you guys. Yeah. Nothing, like there's nothing out there about you guys as a pair. Not that you are a pair because you both do lots of other stuff, but there's nothing, there's not very many interviews with either of you. Uh, so, um, you know, it's a blank slate here. Yeah, <laughs> but maybe we could uh, uh, just talk a little bit. Like I, I know originally um, you come from a musical family and st- and stuff. And maybe you could just tell me a little bit about your like really early background. And the other thing that I noticed is that that you started playing upright bass like super young. Which... Yeah, I was around seven. <laughs> How do you even like physically do that? Well, <laughs> I couldn't tune the D and the A strings because I, I, you know, I couldn't reach them. <laughs> reach them. But my dad would tune the DNA. I could tune G and E. Yeah. You know, but, uh, and just have to stand on stuff if I couldn't, you know, if I couldn't reach. So you'd have like a little. Yeah, thing, times like, like a, a little, you know, could stand on stuff. And so, but what drew you to the upright bass at such a young age? I have no idea, you know. I mean, I always heard those parts, even as far back as my memory can go musically. Yeah. As far as what you hear. Yeah. You know, I always heard the bass parts first. Like know? on some of those early recordings of like country music, you can't even really hear the bass. Like it's there. You can feel it, I guess, sort of. Yeah. But it just doesn't even register. Yeah. You know, I was, well, I was born in 67. So, uh-huh. you know, my memories, my first memories would be, you know, 69, 1970. And at that point, you know, the, the people that you would hear on the radio at that time, country music wise would be Ray Price or uh-huh. or Farron Young and you know uh, Chet Atkins and Billy Sherrill records right and George right. Jones Tammy Wynette people of that era you get too blue to stay at home but in a crowd you're still alone you lose the will to carry on and that's what it's like to be lonesome 
one has a hope that's died Everyone cries a tear inside Everyone has Okay, so that's where you're hearing a lot of the bass playing. Oh, yeah, yeah. So when I came, you know, and my dad was a big big country music so I, I did read that you come from a musical background but I didn't I couldn't quite put my finger on like what what was your replaying in a band with your family no we didn't really have a family band you know I've got I've got two brothers uh -huh. both started before I started my oldest brother was already playing okay he started probably when he was six or seven what was he playing he started out playing mandolin uh -huh. and um and what town were you from we grew up in a little town called Strawberry, Arkansas. All right, which is close to um, to where Levon Helm lived. Reasonably, yeah, yeah. yeah we were um, we were sort of in that that area that's um, really close to uh, the Ozark Mountains, yeah, like yeah. Mountain View, Arkansas, and uh -huh. you know a lot of folk music there. And we were equally as close to uh, all the bottomland, you know, all the. The dark dirt, mm. you know, the Delta, yeah, yeah. which is Helena, Arkansas, Memphis. Yeah. Now at this point, you know, I, I figured out now that I sort of had a foot on both sides right. without really knowing it at that yeah. time, you know. Yeah. But it's the same water. Do you have any memories of like what your first things that you heard that really grabbed you would have been, whether it was on the radio or even like a live concert or anything that... Well, again, you know... Uh, my family, my dad, and my brother, at that early, you know, early on, like 1970, along in there, we lived in Texas. We would go to bluegrass festivals. Mm -hmm. I can't, you know, I can't recall what year Rocky Top came out, but the Osborne brothers, they were opening for Merle Haggard okay. during that, and they're all plugged in. They're wearing gold jackets and amazing, and um, they're at their peak. Yeah, and that's one of my first memories is seeing and hearing that. Wow. You know. I still dream about that. Rocky Park, you'll always be home sweet home to me. Good old Rocky Park. Rocky Park, Tennessee. Rocky Park, Tennessee. Once two strangers climbed old Rocky Park looking for a moonshine still. I don't think of them as a bluegrass band, but I don't think of them as a country band either. They're just, it's a music band. Yeah, yeah. You know, and Sonny Osborne was so inventive. He was, yeah. You know, and his, I know he's a banjo player, but again, I didn't hear it like that. I was hearing right. it more like a guitar. Uh -huh. And on those recordings, the bass. Is it always upright bass on those? No, or? no, there was electric bass, but but the the stuff that caught my ear was was the upright bass yeah. on some of those records, which was Bob Moore. I'm looking out the window at the rain, the night is driving me crazy. It's just as cold inside, all the warmth is gone without my baby. And in my mind something stirs and my lips start crying out your name. You know, so again, going back to that, those first memories of what I'm hearing on the radio. Yeah. At that point, 
you know, when you turned on the radio and stuff wasn't so formatted then. Right. So you would have an Osmond Brothers song, and then you'd have the Ray Price, and then a Frank Sinatra. Yeah. You know, and then Otis Redding. Yeah, so were you hearing, like... I was hearing all of it. And and what about what about contemporary, like, you know, guys like Duck Dunn and Absolutely. stuff like that? That's, so you were hearing stuff like that, mm, going, like, and that's, that's cool, That's too. what I was okay. going to say, you know, is um, I, I could hear Bob Moore's, you know, I'd flip over, and there's Bob just wearing it out and then <laughs> you know um uh, uh lynn anderson yeah and it, i was in the third grade when rose garden come out uh-huh and junior husky i remember hearing that oh, bass yeah. line and he's playing all of these little uh what i later learned when i moved to town what the old regime called the blue beat and oh. he would play notes in between and i was hearing that uh-huh. and it's what duck done you know and, and james jamerson Right. And uh, it's what those guys were playing on the electric bass. I could promise you things like big diamond rings, but you don't find roses growing on stocks of clover. So you better think it over. When it's sweet talking, you could make it come true. I would give you the world right now on a silver. I'm certain that they all were listening to each other. Of course they were, yeah. But it's not like today where you could go and YouTube it or Spotify or have any of that. You had to wait on the radio. Yeah. And the, the same with me. You know, I might get to hear it only one time a day, and then I had to make up what I thought I'd just heard. Right. You know? <laughs> uh, so you would hear that kind of stuff on the radio and then and then get up on your try little to mimic thing it, and try you know? to mimic it. Yeah. Did you start performing at a really young age, too? Again, around the third grade, so wow. yeah, around eight years old. <laughs> yeah. And by that time, my oldest brother was already playing the fiddle. Okay. So we would play, playing fiddle contest. And, oh, okay. And our uncle had a bluegrass band in St. Louis, you know, and my brother was playing in his band already. Cool. When he was 12. Wow. So. What were they called? It was Dub Krauts, Norman Ford, and the Bluegrass Rounders. <laughs> <laughs> That's a classic name right there. It's very classic. <laughs> yeah. So when you, when you heard bluegrass around that time, were you drawn to that music in particular? Or was it just like another thing that you thought was cool? As long as I, I just thought it was sort of cool. I wasn't necessarily drawn to bluegrass by uh-huh. all means. I, I, were you ever tempted to play electric? I, I did play some electric. You did? You know? Yeah. Um, it, I just can't wrap my head around it. You know, yeah. my, I'm, I'm just so deep into this. And I figured if I could carve out a, a niche and be able to do electric parts on the upright Uh uh-huh so let's talk about that because that's something that i think that you're really known for it's like is is approaching it sometimes you know less like a traditional upright player and almost like an electric player i think yeah well i think those early influences you know Uh um james jamerson duck dunn and you know that's they're playing upright bass lines 
right. And they were upright bass players. Were they really both of those guys? Jamerson definitely was. Okay. And Duck came from that background, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the time when that the electric basses were being invented, really, you know. Yeah. When they were coming along. And, so would you actually sit there and like work out Jamerson bass lines on no, the upright bass? No, that I never, never I never have, you know. Okay. You know, I might mimic what he does. Yeah. No, he's already done it, you know. He's, yeah. He's but already but when it. you were a kid, like growing up and you're hearing that, were you like obsessed with Yeah, I wasn't so much inset, uh, obsessed with it, but um I would hear parts yeah. and try to mimic it and right on. You know, the same would would uh, the guys from here like, yeah. you know, Junior Husky or Yeah. Or Bob Moore, you know. I would say Bob, Bob Moore, and Ray Brown are my two biggest influences as wow. far as the upright world. Can you talk a little bit about um, uh, maybe first of all Ray Brown because he's sort of from a from a different world a little bit and and just yeah, what you he, dug about him, how you heard him, and yeah, I like his stuff more from the the fifties and in the sixties most definitely too. You know, yeah, um, the Oscar Peterson records, amazing, eh? Is yeah, they're very amazing, and you can hear those parts, you know. Right, it's, it's really clear. It's yeah. obviously just three of them. Yeah. how he could manipulate the groove of you know uh -huh. he definitely leans to the far side right you know and I'm I'm really opposite of that you know I'm, I play totally at the back of the beat but mm -hmm. but Ray could move stuff around right you know he can move up the whole band and and uh, so do you feel like he was kind of driving the ship in a way oh absolutely that? I oh, felt yeah. like he was driving it you know yeah you know, but I also felt like Oscar Peterson wasn't giving, yeah. he wasn't giving anything either. You yeah, know? no kidding. I mean, it, it was, but they were all driving together. Yeah. And I think I had the appreciation for that. They were all on the same page. Okay. You know, but I like the stuff with Ella Fitzgerald that he's playing on. And I would assume it's during their marriage, but the, his note choice, I uh -huh. just like his note choice and, and uh, you know, how he played the lyric. Who's to Oh, how the ghost of you clings These foolish things remind me of you First daffodils and long excited cables and candlelight When he's behind a singer, he's He's always tuned in, in the same with Bob Moore. Right. And Junior Husky, those guys. Jamerson. Yeah. You know, and uh, Paul McCartney. Yeah. You know, they're just real lyrical. That's the guys I like. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've done some sessions with Jay Ballaros where he doesn't he doesn't want to see the chart. He just wants to look at the lyrics, and he goes off the lyrics, and that's it. And he's I'd say remarkable at it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You don't quite have that freedom as a bass player because you do actually have to hit the right chord at the right time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A good 75% of all the T-Bone records that, that we've all done together, Yeah. you know, the charts are there, but we're going off the lyric. A lot of that is true on this um, Sarah Bareilles record. Uh -huh. 
everyone's really tuned in to what she's saying and and um, on all the records, not just Sarah. I mean, it's mm -hmm. any of those records. It's uh, there was a record a few years back by um, Ray Anning or Ray Anning Giddens. Giddens yeah, and uh, the same thing. It's all it's all feel. Know, everyone is going on the Larry. playing around as a, as a kid like around Arkansas and I know that you moved to Nashville like in the late 90s or something like that 96. but wh like what were you doing through the 80s like you, you were struggling really and <laughs> well you know just just playing where I could play you know I was in I was in bluegrass bands and, okay and country bands yeah you know and were um, you touring and stuff or not even yeah I mean there was local uh -huh. You know, it'd be regional bluegrass bands. And, okay. And, uh, and you you did play with Sean Kemp, right? Sean and I were um, probably around 15 years old when we met. You know, I'm sure we'd heard of each other at that point, but he was in a bluegrass band. I was in a bluegrass band. And we wound up in the same band okay. in Oklahoma. And we would travel back and forth. And, you know, Sean started playing fiddle with the Osborne Brothers and left the band that we were in together. Uh -huh. And he moved here and then... Eventually, you know, started writing. He got a record deal. He, my baby went and left me out there All alone in the middle of nowhere Way out in the middle of nowhere No, nobody wants to go there My baby's gone and she don't care That i here He's the guy that got me on on his demo sessions. Oh, in Nashville. In Nashville. Yeah. So that was your first like that was right at the experience end. Here. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Basically, as far as the whole music row thing goes, and but anyway, we do the session, and at the end of it, I'm packing my stuff up to head back home, and um, Mark Miller and Alan Reynolds was like, "You should think about moving here. You know, this <laughs> might work out for you." And it was like, "There's no way." Yeah. yeah, there's yeah. no way. I mean, this is... You, you were know. pretty dug in. Did you have kids and stuff? Oh, already? yeah, two little girls. Oh, and, my God, that's terrifying. You know, the, the whole nine yards. And, and um, you know, Roy Husky Jr. was just playing his tail off. He was at... Yeah, he was doing everything. He was the guy, you yeah. know, in the upright world. And then there was Glenn Wharf and David Hungate and, yeah. and Michael Rhodes. Yeah. You know, who I'm an equal fan of. Sure. You know? And uh, I thought, there's no way. <laughs> you know, but Sean, Sean was like, man, you should really think. And he, you know, he was pushing and he got me on this stuff. And anyway, I, I got home and kept thinking about it, kept thinking about it. You know, this was like on a Friday, actually. Uh -huh. I got home. We put our house in the local paper for sale on Monday and it sold that Thursday. <laughs> really? <laughs> Four so days back, later. Man. <laughs> my wife and I, we drove back to town, yeah. back to Nashville. You know, we lived on a gravel road, so our deal was uh, we're going to start it at this little town square, and yeah. we'll take the first paved road. <laughs> <laughs> 
then we see, and we did, and there was a place for sale. We called on it, you know, went and met the guy and bought the place. Whoa. And uh, where, where, what part of town is it? Oh, it was way out west. Oh, yeah. You know, a little town called Charlotte. Okay. And uh, But our deal was uh, if we bought a place, we knew we had to make it. If we would have moved here and rented it and things wouldn't have worked out. You would have just hightailed it It would back. be easy to pack stuff up and leave. Yeah. We kind of did the same thing, so I can totally relate to the, yeah, it's a deal. the fear I mean, factor you, of it, too. It, it's a very big fear factor, but at that point, in my mind, it's like I either have to make it or... Did you have gigs lined up or anything? You just nothing, moved here with nothing. Nothing. I I was the same. You know, I mean, I had, you know, Sean was helping me every way that he could, and yeah. he's, you know, I'm 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 forever grateful to him yeah. for that, you know. But after you moved here, what were your early studio experiences? Well, like, were you doing um, a bunch of demos and like Music Row kind of stuff? Yeah, there was one point after a couple months where nothing was happening. <laughs> yeah. You know, you don't. I don't know anyone, and yeah. But I went downtown. It was a different Broadway at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, it was still really rough. Yeah. I seen Mike Bubb, another bass player. Sure. And Ernie Sykes, another bass player, uh-huh. across the street, standing like out in front of Tootsie's. Yeah. And I'm I'm on the other side, you know. And those guys said, "Hey, what are you doing?" And did you know? Did you know Mike Bubb yet? Yeah, I knew Either. Mike and, okay. and and Ernie. Okay. You know, I sort of had my tail tucked between my legs and said, "I'm not doing nothing." They <laughs> said, "Come over here. We got a band upstairs." You know, so I go over there and sit in. There was a country band doing all shuffle songs. Oh yeah, country shuffles like Ray Price kind of stuff. Ray Price, yeah. Farron Young, you okay, know the yeah. deal. Mike Bubb was playing rhythm guitar. Wow. And Ernie Sykes was like the the front man. Really. And, and playing bass. Uh-huh. So I went over and wound up setting in. And then it was a weekly thing, sort of. It just Upstairs became. at Tootsie's. And, and Tootsie's wasn't like it is now. It was um, chicken wire and a tarp. Oh, it was hardcore. It was real hardcore. <laughs> real hardcore. You know, our, our claim to fame from that whole gig was we got fired out of Tootsie's, which was impossible to get the, to happen. <laughs> and and um, How'd you manage that? The lady that worked downstairs... <laughs> Was also dating the singer who played in the window. Uh-huh. You know, and it was a one-man act. And when people would come in, yeah, they would hear a full band upstairs. Ah. Uh-huh. So he wouldn't get any of the tips. You yeah. Know. But this particular night, it was beginning to rain. The lady was wanting us to play under this tarp. You know, well, it starts sprinkling. We're like, no, nah, we ain't playing under the tarp. We're going <laughs> to close these doors and play, you know, up in the front, which drew all the people from mm-hmm. her boyfriend up to us and we lasted one song and she kicked us out really? <laughs> yeah <laughs> so she was going to call the cops if we hit one more note and, holy shit you know so that was it around but eddie stubbs was also the fiddle player in that band eddie stubbs like grand Ole opry eddie stubbs grand Ole opry eddie stubbs was no playing kidding. fiddle oh well you know? but that was sort of my first experience and i thought man this is this is sort of great you know <laughs> so that was a weekly gig and you must have met quite a few musicians I met a lot. There was a guy named Wiley Gustafson came there. Uh-huh. And he had a band at that time. And again, this is 96. And Wiley had a band called Wiley and the Wild West Show. <laughs> and a, a cowboy band from Montana. But they had gained some popularity at that point. And Wiley was doing a lot of Grand Ole Opry spots and TV stuff. And Wiley came in to one of those nights. And he said, man... I come to town, I need a bass player sometimes. Would you huh. be interested? So I just sort of blew it off. But actually about 
a month later, he came through town and, and he called in advance and he said, I've got a, at that time they called it Primetime Country, mm-hmm. which was on CMT. the Nashville oh, yeah. network, yeah. which became CMT, I guess. Yeah. But uh, he was doing Primetime Country on Thursday and doing the Grand Ole Opry on Friday and Saturday and the TV spot on the Opry on that Saturday. So It's a home run. It was a huge home run, you know, because I wasn't making any money and really needed really? the money. Yeah. But that was the first time I played on the Grand Ole Opry. Amazing. And, uh, Did that blow your mind? Really blew my mind. I bet. You know, and again, Roy Husky. Well, let's talk about Roy Husky. So Yeah, so Roy, man, again, a huge influence. But Roy, the fortunate and unfortunate side of all was um, I was really happy to be here. And happy to get whatever tiny little bit of work I was getting. Yeah. And really happy Roy was getting all he was getting. You know, so with that being said, the unfortunate circumstance of everything was I hadn't been here long before Roy got sick. Yeah, yeah. And when Roy started getting sick, and as he couldn't play, I started getting those calls. Yeah, you sort of stepped right into his You know, which was not the place I wanted to be. Uh Uh-huh. You know? I mean, I did and I didn't. I just didn't want it to happen like that. And then being that guy to come in. So did you? had you met him? I only met Roy. And it, it stuck with me. And, and I'm one of them. I do it now and I'll, I'll carry it until I die. You know, that that Roy, I met him at the Station Inn, this little club out on sure. 12th Avenue here. I walked in to the Station Inn and rounded that corner at the door. And lo and behold, I mean, the first guy I see is Roy. Oh, man. And uh, I can't remember who was, I think it was Ronnie McCurry uh-huh. was standing back there. So I walk up and, and Ronnie introduced us. And Roy sort of looks in the direction, you know, Ronnie, he says, you know, this is a new bass player that's moved to town. And, and Roy looks up and he says, are you, are you moving to town? Are you an upright or an electric guy? That's a tricky question coming from him, you know. But I said, I'm an upright guy. I'm coming to town to be an upright bass player. Yeah. And he put his hand out, and he said, good. Welcome to town. There needs to be more of us. Amazing. Because he could have just as easily slapped you in the head to go back to Arkansas. You know, and man, I was just sitting there taken back. I thought, that is so great. And he looked, and he said, if you get this old bird figured out, you let me know. Really? And I thought, God, man, that is so great, you know? Yeah. I mean, he was such a kind soul. You could just tell, you know? You can tell it in his playing. Yeah. I can. Can you tell me what made him, in your mind, such a great player? And maybe, like, just tell me a couple things about his actual musicianship that you admired? Roy always played the song Mm -hmm. as a bass player. He never... I always think of Roy. He wasn't the guy that was going to step out. He wasn't trying to draw attention to himself. Not at all, man. I I always hear Roy. His playing to me, he's the guy that if you're playing a guitar solo, in his mind, he's the guy that's going to be sitting there going, how am I going to make Steve's guitar solo better? And that, it's the same in my mind. Right. You know, I'm not sitting there going, look at me, you know, listen to this triplet that I just played in my mind I'm sitting there going man how am I going to make that singer how am I going to make that lyric better you know if it's sad how can I make it 
the tunnel, I see the light, and it's burning bright. I see the light, it's the light at the end that I run to, and the light, darling, is you. I have traveled down this highway of hope abandoned. Um, I also noticed with him, like from seeing like live footage of him and, and things like that, that his tone, like he projects. I don't know if he played really hard. I don't think he did, but like his his sound. It was his hand, you know. After he died, I called his widow up. I didn't want the bass. I wanted to see it. I'd oh, seen yeah. and heard it so many times, and I called her up. Her name's Lisa. So I called Lisa up, and I asked her if I could come over. You know, so I drive over to their house. She leads me back. You know, the bass is still propped in the corner where Roy left it. Oh, man. And um, it was really a surreal moment, you know, uh -huh. to even see it. and and uh, But anyway, I go over to the bass, and just sort of lightly tune it up and only played four notes, you know? Yeah. Just bum, 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 bum. And leaned it back up in the corner. <laughs> and she said, you don't want to play the bass? And I said, I just did. You know, I, I wanted to hear that bass under my hands. It could have been any bass, uh -huh. you know. Yeah. But it was his, it was his soul. So much know? soul. Yeah. And, and that's how, that's how I hear Roy's playing. Are there any highlights for you of things that he did that, that you think exemplify that? Yeah, the um, Amy Lou Harris and the Nash Ramblers. Oh yeah. From um, the Ryman. The Ryman. The the, the live. The nineties one. Yeah, yeah from yeah. Uh, uh, 94, 95. That's inc that's one where I think like it just sounds like he must be playing so hard, but I don't think he is. No, it's I, I just think he's playing brilliant on that. You yeah, know? and she does that song "Boulder to Birmingham." Yeah. And You know, right there for country bass playing. Yeah. You know, during that period. And his dad's the same way. Yeah. Amazing. I wasn't here to fill the shoes. I don't want to fill anybody's shoes. I just want to wear my own shoes. I get it. You know? I get it. But do you feel like that? I mean, it's, it, from an outsider's point of view, it seems like that it's basically, you know, I what got happened. it. I yeah. had it. You know, there yeah. was there was times that I walked in, you know, and you, I, I would just feel it, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. I had one engineer turn around after we cut a song and he just looked at me and there was about a 10 second 
dead silent thing, you know, just awkward. And the words that come out of his mouth was all he said was he looked at me and said, "Boy, I sure do miss old Roy." <laughs> I didn't take it bad or anything, but yeah. it was like, "Hey, you could have said anything, but that I miss him too, you know." Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not here to be Roy. So just trying to carve my own niche, and but you know what, everybody that comes to town, that's going to happen. And yeah, of course. And yeah. in this city, you check your ego <laughs> at the you. Need to check it at the Davidson County. Actually, you need to check it at the state line. <laughs> the state line, yeah. So check your egos, grow some thick skin, put your head down, and go. Yeah. You know you're going to get replaced on the record. Yeah, that's happened to you, right? Like I heard something about a Dixie oh. Chicks record. What what happened with that? Yeah, yeah. I had um. This is during the same period of time. You know? Yeah, like Roy had already passed away. Uh-huh. And with Roy's passing, you know, he was the Grand Ole Opry. Staff band sub. So sort of backtracking before we get to the chicks. Um, I met Billy Lineman, who was the staff bass player. Oh, okay. At that time, Billy is, my God, a, another Monster. big influence. Yeah. You know? And um, so Billy started calling me to sub in the Grand Ole Opry band. This was in 99 and 2000. Okay. Setting again in Roy's... I'm in Roy's place, you know. Right. I mean, I, I wish Roy, and without getting too deep, man, I, I I believe way down deep, Roy knows. He and his dad uh, of the appreciation, mm-hmm. you know, because all of this is a direct link of course it is. to yeah. him, you know. Sure, yeah. But I'm sitting in that staff band and looking over to my left and Buddy Harmon's counting off the first song. You're just like, what the what? Yeah, <laughs> I'm sitting there going, man, do I throw up? <laughs> Do I pass out? <laughs> I mean, it was so great, you know, and really quick, you know, ever how long it takes you to go, what, two, three, four, two, two, you know, there's that moment of going, man, he's done this. Bob Moore has seen this count. Yeah. Junior Husky has seen this count. Here I am. Roy Husky, Billy, L- you know, just yeah. down the list. And I'm going, holy cow, man. Yeah. Roy Orbison has seen this count. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> So it was so great. So you were the so, sub for the Opry. Did did you do that? Did you actually end up doing the, like getting the call a lot, or was that? Yeah, for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe a year and a half, two yeah. years. And I'd started playing with uh, Steve Earle during yeah. that time. Mm-hmm. I think that was in '99. So you played on Transcendental Blues, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and Steve was so great because I remember the first time that um, I got called to sub, and that was in 99. We were out with Steve. I, I don't remember where we were. I had gotten a call to sub with the Grand Ole Opry when they called the dates in. You know, it's that moment where it's like, what do I do? Yeah, yeah. Steve, you know, and you know, as a touring act, a Friday night and a Saturday night, you know, weekends are going to be your big dates. Right. Steve took off. A Friday and Saturday, so I could fly back to Nashville. Really? To sub in the band. Really? 
Whoa, yeah. that's heavy. Then. It's real heavy. <laughs> you know, and then I flew back out and met him. That's incredible. Yeah, it was really great. And uh, But that was a couple of years, and that led to a relationship with Tim O'Brien and Daryl Scott. And, yeah, all and, can move up to the chick okay. maybe 2000 it was what became their big breakout oh, their record big, okay yeah yeah and they had uh they called in some days man i thought this is it this is the break uh-huh you know this is this is here's the break here we go so we're maybe three weeks out and one of the sisters called and they said we're not going to be able to use you on this record oh shit you know and i just sort of sank for a moment and i went well I understand, you know, I understand the workings of, but is there a reason? And she said, well, the engineer doesn't know you. The engineer. uh, He's going to bring in a guy that he uses. And I said, well, you know, I I don't know a whole lot about the workings of, but what I do know is when did the engineer start hiring the session person? No doubt. And she said, well, you know, and it just sort of hit. Who was producing that record? I don't even remember. Was it her, Was it Natalie's dad? Maybe it was Lloyd. Natalie's dad. Maybe it was Lloyd. Yeah. But he hadn't made the call. It wasn't him that made the call. It was, it was the, the engineer, engineer crazy. who had brought the bass player in. Yeah. But, um, you know, my first inclination was to get off the phone and call the engineer. Really? <laughs> you know. Yeah. But I sort of backed up and I came through and I told my wife. It was like, man, you know, we're making it. Yeah. You're working. And if I ever have to kiss anyone's ass... To mm-hmm. work in this town, yeah. we're going to move. Right. So it's all good. And went on probably 30 minutes later, within 30 minutes. Could have been shorter, but not over 30 minutes. Yeah. The phone rings. I picked the phone up. It's a guy named Keith Case. At the time, I was I just started in a bluegrass band called the Nashville Bluegrass Band. And mm-hmm. Keith is the guy that booked that band. So I'm new to the whole thing. But Keith calls me up, and he says, hey, I'm calling you about some dates. And there's this guy, T-Bone Burnett. You know who T-Bone Burnett is? And I went, yeah, I certainly do. Mm-hmm. But I knew T-Bone more from, you know, the record he had produced on The Wallflowers. and Right, like a, like a rock guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Counting Crows on right. down the list. Old Brother War Arthur wasn't really on my radar mm-hmm. at that time. It, it, it was out already? I don't even know that it was out. Okay. And if it was out, it had just came out. Mm -hmm. And I just wasn't aware much of it. I knew he had been in town, you know, and I knew he had cut some records here with Roy Husky playing the bass. But at any rate, Keith calls and he says, you know, we go through the whole thing. I said, certainly I know who T-Bone is. Mm -hmm. You know, and he says, well, he's coming to town to produce this record and we're calling to see... You know, if we can get you to play some bass on it. And I said, well, I'm standing up at the calendar. What's the date? <laughs> and he names these dates off. And I said, well, Keith, it just so happens I have them open. And it was the same exact 14 <laughs> days. Really? <laughs> as the Ditsy Check record. Wow. The same from start to finish. 
it felt exactly in that block. Crazy. And I meant said, to be. I've got it open. I'd yeah. love to do it. Yeah. So, you know, two, three weeks later, I show up at Sound Emporium and um, Ralph Stanley comes in. Oh, my T-Bone's God. T-Bone's producing a Ralph Stanley record. No way. All live. We're yeah. all in a circle. He certainly did have a sweet message to tell. The woman commenced to wonder because he was a Jew. He came to draw men unto him. Oh, lift him up, that's all. Lift him up in his word. He can tell the name of Jesus everywhere. If you keep his name ringing everywhere that you go, he will draw men. Stuart Duncan and Mike Compton, we were. We were already acquainted via Nashville Bluegrass yep. Band, and, and we played on a few records together. But Norman Blake was on that. Amazing. Of course, Ralph. I think that was pretty much it. Yeah, right. It's just it's a, it's pretty, it's a, pretty bare bone, yeah. you know. And uh, so here comes T Bone in, and, and um, at that time, Bob Newerth was uh, he was hanging out a lot and filming all this stuff, you know, but. Crazy Bob Newworth, like from the from the um, the whole Rolling Thunder scene, he was involved. He in He was all of that, yeah. you know. We just hit the right chords, yeah. so to speak, you know. No pun just per- intended. Personally, and personally, and obviously musically, you guys hit it off. Yeah. Was T Bone playing at that session, or was he just? No, producing? he wasn't necessarily playing, but all his ideas were being put forth. Okay. What was the dynamic like between a guy like T Bone and, say, Ralph Stanley? Who, I mean. I don't know what Ralph was like personally, but like, he must have been a little set in his way. Like he was, he was. Well, he was definitely set in his way, but T-Bone is a, he's such a master at that, you know, of being able to, um, to accommodate that. Right. The money that you save from your harsh rains and silk garters, they'll build a dog house on And he knows what what to push and what not to push, yeah, you know. Yeah. And certainly how to let him be an individual. Right. You know, and at this time I didn't really know that about T Bone. It's the first time working for him. Mm-hmm. And maybe a couple of weeks later, I'm back at Sound Emporium working on something else. But I'm leaving. I'm leaving the studio and I'm walking down the hall. This engineer sticks his head out of Studio A. Yeah. And he says, What are you doing? I said, I'm going home. And he said, can you hang loose for about an hour or two? We might need you on something. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I guess so. You know, so I hang loose for about an hour and he comes back out and he said, they're sending tracks over and we need you to overdub on some stuff. And I said, what is it? And he said, T-Bone Burnett. And it's a movie called Cold Mountain. Perfect. And I was like, holy cow, man. Yeah. So the ball starts picking up yeah, yeah. a little bit of steam, you know. So 
that, that so was, tell me about that session. Like, were you you were literally overdubbing to tracks that they'd sent? Were you seeing picture or were you just playing bass? The engineer Matt Matt Andrews. Uh-huh. We didn't know there was no picture. Okay. You know, we're just hearing what the song is, and it's sort of a mock up. Yeah. Of um, it's what became the the theme of that movie was uh, called My Ain True Love. Uh huh. And Sting and Allison Krauss were singing this, but they had um. They recorded the trap with, on, a, on a keyboard, you know, like a keyboard okay. bass, and they wanted a natural I live bet. bass on it, you I know? Bet they did. And you will be And you will be. Sleep inside the cannon's mouth. The captain cries here. And this stuff would come in, so we'd just lay like three passes down. Uh-huh. And say, okay, you can choose here's a pluck part or here's a bowed part. Or yeah. It started escalating, you know, as cool. far as the T-bone work. And- so just take me back to the Ralph Stanley one for a sec, because that was like your first moment with him. You, you'd mentioned being in a circle. Was that how the whole record was made? You. You, um, so you're not you're not amplified at all, obviously. Um, no. You're not on headphones or anything. You're just playing straight. Yeah, just playing a song, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so for for a record like that, you mentioned that they booked you for two weeks. Did you really take two weeks to make that record? Yeah. So there was a lot of like trial and error and yeah, yeah. Because and... nobody, you know, we don't know. We're a new band, mm-hmm. and and Norman, Mike, and Stewart, and and Ralph too. I, I was actually the new guy. Those guys had all done this old Brother War Art Thou, so they all sort of had a working relationship. Right. I didn't. Uh-huh. Of course, in my childhood, I had heard the Stanley Brothers. Yeah. Yeah, I never played any of that stuff. You know, I'm having to stand there, and I, I physically had to watch. I'm right beside Ralph, and to get his phrasing down. His you know, vo- vocal phrasing. His vocal phrasing. Yeah. Because it, it can lunge. Right. And to for me to get that phrasing down of how he can push one lyric, and then the next lyric can be so far behind. Yeah. I had to, I would watch him and I had to learn how he was breathing. Wow. To play in meter with it. Would he do it the same every time or was he? No. Okay. Right. No. So, so I would just, I would, I would watch him. Yeah. And I learned his breathing pattern. <laughs> and once I learned that, I knew where he was going to place what word. Uh huh. You know, because there was no going back to punch in. Right. Of course. Yeah. You know, you either made the track or you didn't. Yeah. You know? and, and so were you spending a lot of time on each song? Not necessarily. Some some came fast, some yeah. Yeah. you know, and these are new songs for Ralph. Right. You know, and it was songs that he wasn't familiar with. Oh, that's hard for for somebody like Someone that. Someone that's set in their ways, you know. Yeah, yeah. And at that time Ralph would have been eighty. He wasn't quite no, he would have been in his seventies, you okay. know. Um I would say he was 
a good solid 72 or three. Yeah. You know, but he'd already been doing this stuff from, you know, 55 or 60 yeah. years. And, and so he's having to learn it. Was that frustrating for him or was he growing no, with it? No, he, he, was, was, he was a total pro. That's for awesome. It, you know? Yeah. 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 And for me, you know, to see all, I, I, I just feel really lucky because I, I got to see all this stuff and these guys are working. And, and how was, how did your relationship with T-Bone develop? Like, did you guys hang out and get, get along really well? We got along great. Was he directive with you as far as like the actual playing part goes? Man, my favorite thing about T-Bone ever, you know, I, I remember asking T-Bone what he wanted me to play. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, what do you want me to play? And he just turned around, and his only response was like, you're the bass player. <laughs> and that was the first time I ever had a producer say that. Yeah. I mean, Sean Kemp got me to town. T-Bone Burnett gave me a voice. Uh-huh. At first I did not see Lying at my feet a So what are some other highlights of working with him, with him then? Because you, you guys have done so much together. Maybe we could talk about a few of those sessions. Well, I you mean, know, we gotta, that's we, like around 2000, 2001. Yeah, that's where things like just go bananas for you and you're on everything. Yeah, the ball starts rolling. You know, I'm either overdubbing stuff or I'm flying out there. None of us are all together at once. Uh-huh. But the highlight is about 2000... Five, I guess, around 2005, somewhere in that period, T-Bone decides he's going to cut a record. His own record. His own record. Yeah. And um, this is, is it True False Identity? Yeah, True False Identity. So he sets up camp at Capital B Room. In LA. In LA. Yeah. Brings in Mark Rebo. Yeah. From New York. And then there's um, three drummers. And it's Jim Keltner, Jay Bella Rose, and Carla Azar. Oh, my God. And then Keith Chancia playing all the playing keyboard parts. And that was the first time that band had all been together live. Had you played with Jay before that? We we had all played together, but never live. Oh, it, okay. it had always been like an overdub situation where they would send something to town and I would overdub on it or, you know, that, that type, or vice versa. What records would I know that you were overdubbing on? Well, the Cold Mountain stuff. Okay. A yeah. lot of that. And uh, I don't know. I'd have just to go seems, back and It just look. seems so anti the whole image it I is. have in my mind of all those well, T-Bone records. There's not a lot of them, you know. Okay. But but, uh, but that was happening in the early stage. During that, you yeah. know, as far as... Because those guys were certainly still cutting records. And, and uh, the stuff that I would come in and overdub a lot of times on was... Um, uh, Mike Elizondo yeah. was playing bass on a lot of stuff. Electric. 
Yeah. yeah. And sometimes it would be in addition to. Right. So that's the stuff that I was overdubbing on. Okay. That was coming here. And again, Matt Andrew, we wouldn't know what they would want. <laughs> you know, so I'd go in and, and, and play a pluck part. And then we'd do a slap part. Uh-huh. And then send these back. And then, you know. Okay. Mike Pierasante, who's just a huge part of that yeah. could go in and dissect and take what he needed to right asleep inside the cannon's mouth the captain cries here comes the they'll seek to bind me north and south I've gone to So tell me about uh, about that session then for the True False Identity record. And I mean, first of all, how do you deal with three dr- three drummers? I talked to Jay about like how he dealt with playing with Keltner, and he was basically saying that he would leave entire bars of nothing and and just be like, "I'm playing with Jim Keltner. This is crazy." Uh, and, yeah. But how did you, as a bass player, like navigate so much drum drumming? <laughs> well, for me at that point, in my mind, I thought. I'll just become a drummer, too. Oh, okay. Join the party. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I basically got a big drum here with four strings on it, so I'm going to do the same thing. <laughs> That's what made it work. Yeah. In my head, I was looking at three drummers. Jay and I had never met. Okay. And I'm not for certain. So the three were drummers were set up side by side in the big room. Yeah, in the big room. Amazing. But I'm looking at Keltner. Okay. You know, I'm sort of faced... He was being treated as the prime drummer, or was it all just I, like I, a... I, Yeah, that I, that I don't know. Okay. That's just from my perspective of where yeah. I was sitting. You know, when I looked up, I was looking at Jim first. Okay. Yeah. You know, I was hearing Jim way at the back of the beat. Mm-hmm. You know, he's playing way back there. Yeah. Carla, she was sort of leaning to the front. Mm-hmm. And Jay was... He was sort of doing more of the percussive parts. Right, yeah. He was sort of squared right in the middle, you know. He was, I was hearing him as the marriage yeah. of all. Okay. You know, it was great for me because I, I had so many options. Yeah. <laughs> you know, of, of where I needed to play the beat. So that must have created quite a racket too, though. Like, how were you technically, were, were you isolated or were they isolated? I was isolated. They weren't were, isolated. Okay, yeah. And Mark, you know, Rebo was mm-hmm. somewhat isolated. Okay. But he's just screaming over there, too. <laughs> so we were all just just going wide open. But, yeah. you know, T-Bone had a vision. and, and uh, Was he was T-Bone playing live with you guys? Or? Oh, he's playing, too. He was, okay. Yeah, yeah. he's playing and singing. And, yeah. You know, I mean, we're all doing stuff live. Yeah. And, and uh, There's no precedent for, a, for a, 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 an ensemble like that. Three drummers, yeah, a, a bright it was player. Just, I, I don't know why, why it was, you know, it was songs that... He just needed to get out, yeah. you know, and at that time. And would you would you cut him and do a take and be like, yeah, that was great? Or was there a lot of like trying to figure there's out? There's a how? lot of layering. Oh, yeah. But okay. yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff. It's like, okay, that, that's the take. Mm-hmm. And then there'd just be layers and layers and layers of. Were you doing layers of bass? Yeah. So you do T-Bone's some T-Bone's not and... scared of the bass. Okay, yeah, yeah. You know, he loves the low end and, and uh, like sort of going back to Cold Mountain. Yeah. The opening scene of the movie are sort of, you know, the guys dug into the trenches. They're, they're in, a, in battle. Yeah. 
and you sort of hear this rumbling coming up, uh-huh. you know, and then it's just like, oh, you know, <laughs> and and uh, that's about five or six of my bases layered on top of really? each other. tuned down to the lowest that I can get. Yeah. If it's low C, I've, I've tuned down to a low C and, yeah. and just stacked the parts. Wow. You know, so he's not scared. <laughs> he's not He's not scared of that. Yeah. To me, that was a defining moment yep. of what be, what became or yeah, what has because become. because that, that unit went on to, I mean, you guys did the Robert Plant, Alison Krauss record. Yeah. A lot of touring as well and... Maybe, can you tell me about the, the Robert Plant, Alison Krauss session and how that was done? And I've heard from Jay about that, and Mark Rebo actually was on this show, and he talks about that session as well. Jay said he was a little bit terrified of Mark Rebo because he didn't really know him at that point. And None of us really knew each other, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'd done a T-bone stuff, but... Where did you make that record? Was it in L.A. or here? Uh, the Raisin Sand? Yeah. It was... Most of it was here. Okay. It sounded Sound important. Yeah. Over in the A room. There was a, one of Allison's songs, um, Rosetta, Rosetta. Sister Rosetta Comes Before Us? Yes. Is that the one? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. That was cut in Los Angeles at um, Sage and Sound or Sound and Sage, I think was the name of the place. And uh, But primarily, everything was cut here. And in what sort of fashion? Like how, what do you remember about the actual session? Yeah, my memory of it was uh, Mark and T-Bone were set up at the end of the you know, that's a fairly large room. Yeah. If you're walking into the room and you're looking at the back. Yeah. You know, Jay and I were sort of camped out back there. Uh-huh. And um, Mark and T-Bone were sort of camped out right in front of the, the engineer, you know, yeah. in front of that that glass. Right. You know, and then there's a sprinklings of Riley Boggess. Is, yeah, right. He's on some of that stuff. And Norman Blake's on some of that yeah. stuff. And yeah, yeah. But we're all scattered through the room. And were Robert and Allison singing live with you guys? A lot of the times. Okay. Because uh, they, they had pretty tight arrangements on that stuff. Was that th- something that had been worked out previous no, to the session? So. Or? Okay. I don't think so. You so know, were... I, I know when I got that call from Ivy Scoff, who coordinates all the, all the, all of the sessions, and, uh-huh. and Ivy says, but, you know, this is for T-Bone Burnett, you know, and we've got the dates coming up. So I'm I'm computing all this stuff in. I said, who's the artist? She said, it's Robert Plant and Alison Krauss. And I said, man, that's great. Who are we cutting first? <laughs> and there's like a brief silence. And she said, it's Robert Plant and Alison Krauss. And I said, yeah, I heard that. But yeah. So are we doing Robert first and Alison in or vice versa? And she said, no, it's together. Wow. And my mind automatically went, man. Who came up with this scheme? You yeah, know? I mean, this that is, ain't gonna work. <laughs> you know? Bunch of bullcrap. Yeah, <laughs> but I thought if anybody can pull this off, it's gonna be T Bone Burnett. Sure.
I'm sure they had preparation because they they knew what songs were. Going you hadn't you hadn't been sent songs or anything. No, you, you no, we never get blind. sent songs. And yeah. I think that's a preference. It's, yeah, yeah. It certainly is for me. You know? Yeah, that's how I like to roll too. You know, they're singing. I'm I'm sure that they went back and re-sang some of the parts. And, yeah. But as far as the rhythm tracks. Yeah. We're playing the lyric as if it's the real thing. Yeah. That I must don't have been know pretty, what happened after that. That must know. have been pretty mind-blowing. It was real mind-blowing, <laughs> you know? I mean, my God. And that that record has a, such a vibe, too. Like, And it's really, like, you know, I, I guess it's 10 years old now or more. I mean, it's aged super well, of course, because there's no, no like, technology-based things. But, but the well, vibe again, on there is incredible. Oh, did, that, did you guys... Um, like it just seems like that unit really gel had gelled by that time. I don't know if it was it on that gelled, record or. Um, well, at that time, he we'd done a, a tour after this true false identity record. Yeah. He decided that we should go out and play some dates. Mm-hmm. You know, and he likes to refer to it as just like one of the most expensive vacations he ever had. <laughs> <laughs> but man, it was so great because he leases out three buses and he has a bus. And the band's got a bus, and the crew's T-Bone's got a bus. has got his own bus. Oh yeah, nice. he and Callie. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and we've got a semi. Yeah, man, we're the deal. Wow. And here we set off, man. We're going cross country, and and um, Jay's drums got on the tour, but he never made the tour because I guess the budget or something got cut, and he was out with someone else. So Jay, Jay, Jay didn't come. No, Jay didn't make the tour. Oh, but the band was Mark Rebo. And Keith is Chancia. Yeah. And Jim Keltner. Oh. And myself. Okay. Keltner hadn't been on a bus in like 30 years really? or something. It was great, man. <laughs> and Rebo and Jacob Dillon. Yeah. And Patrick Warren, the great keyboard yeah, player, Patrick. They were opening up the shows. Wow. Just as a duo or something? Just as a duo. Wow. Amazing. And Jacob, you know, we would, he would join us for songs too. Mm hmm. But uh, we're all on the bus together. Mm-hmm. You know, Jacob and, and Patrick's on, on the band bus, so we all, we all wind up acquainted that way, you know. Yeah. Man, it was, it was so much fun, but that's where it started gelling. Okay. You know, things as far as Rebo and how everyone really feels things. Yeah. And, There's uh, a thing that you, that you guys do that, like, and you and Jay in particular as a rhythm section, where it's like you're all playing intensely and great, but there's so much space. That's the thing. Well, getting back up to Raising Sand, mm-hmm. that was really a defining moment for Bella Rose and myself. Yeah. You know, because all of a sudden, it's just the two of us. Right. There's no Keltner. Yeah. You know, there's no Carla, no Kephas. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's bare bone. Yeah. yeah. You know, and primarily that whole record is T-Bone, Mark Rebo, Jay and I. Yeah. Darkness held me. And Jay, when we still laugh about it, you know, but we've never had a conversation. We've had music conversations, but we've never had a conversation about what the other one's going to play. Okay. You know, man, where where are you feeling that beat, you know, or or, uh, 
you know, are you going to play like, you know, is your foot on your foot? Are you going to be doing eighth notes or yeah? That conversation has never happened. Well, because but he also changes what he does. Like anytime I've worked with Jay, he'll play it. He'll play a song completely different the next time. So I can't see why that conversation would be relevant. No, there was anyway. no reason to have that, and but that was at the moment. Jay would play stuff, and I'm, I'm, you know, certainly locked into what he's playing, but I can physically see it too, which helps. I think, yeah, with him, and then yeah. it's vice versa. Right. I'll certainly speak for myself. That was the record, and when it came out, I and still I've got people that come up and go, "Man, that stuff Jay Bella Rose is playing on his rims, that's great." All those, you know, those little triplets, and it's. And I'm sitting there and going, well, that's not really Jay. Uh-huh. And that's not really me. Uh-huh. That's both of us. Right. You know, because Jay, I would see him, you know, and maybe he'd go down and, and do the thing on his bass drum. Yep. Or, or on his rim where it might just be like a, a triplet. Yeah. You know, but like a... You know, and I could see that. And then I would answer him yeah. with a slap part. Right. So the whole... That deal going You're back to no converse. Yeah, yeah. Is, our conversations is going to happen musically. Yeah. yeah. We're not going to talk about totally. what we're about to do. No plans. Just do it. The thing about his playing, too, is like he plays a lot of toms and a lot of like low end information. He's not a cymbal guy. I mean, he's got cool, weird cymbals, but he tends to be down on those toms, just like making low end grooves happen and do from, you do you have to like navigate that as a bass player at all or i don't really navigate it i just uh-huh. you know i sort of listen and and if jay's going to go down there and camp out yeah you know i'm going to jump up on the on the higher strings right on right. the treble strings and not you know there, there'll be those moments that um that i might can embellish what he's doing yeah and that goes back to to making him sound better yeah but then again he's going to do stuff this going to make me sound better, you know, and, and be a compliment. But in our minds, our job is to to make the singer better, you yeah. know, or the soloist better. Right. You know, what what can we do that's going to make Rebo's, not that it's not already great, <laughs> you know, but, but how can it, yeah, how can it be better? So in those situations where you guys are working together, like say on the Raising Sound record, uh, were you, would you be doing a lot of, again like different takes and fleshing out ideas and songs or is it was it all pretty did that stuff all happen pretty organically and quickly or it what do you happened, remember about that yeah well yes to all of the above okay you know it's very organic yeah some did happen really quick but there again a lot of stuff's labored right you know so the time consumption a lot of times is laboring yeah you know the tracks can happen fast yeah you know the basic track. Right. But then there's all the stuff, you know. You know, Mark might spend three or four hours on guitar parts. Yeah. You know, and, and, and the same with Jay or the same vocally or, you know, so that's all. And T-Bone gives us all the, uh, he gives us all the, the time and freedom. Yeah. That yeah. one can allow. Right. To do that. That's you know? a good thing to have. But it's a it's a huge team, you know, because again, that goes back to Mike Pierasante Pier yeah. and, and Jason Warmer. Yeah, Pierasante is like the, the unsung hero of that situation, I think, because I, 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 I know T-Bone must lean on him a lot to get... He and Jason. Oh, yeah. You know, Jason's came on board and he's really great too. Mikey's a huge part of that. And um, 
you know that that's the chain i mean it, it goes us via t-bone yeah and uh and t-bone is so brilliant at hearing and knowing what the sound should be yeah and then mikey is an extension of t-bone right and then once it's left mike's hands it goes to gavin lurson yeah who warms everything up and and yeah gavin is at the very end of the you know the chain i don't want to say he's at the end of but he's a you know but that <laughs> no it's integral that's the stages those, yeah. that's, and everyone has a very very defining role So what have you learned in that situation about actually recording the bass? Like, tell me some stuff about how, I mean, I know you have preference for certain kind of microphones and things like that, but how much of that has come from that camp of T-Bone and Mike and, and maybe give me a couple tips about how you like to approach? You know, I like stacking the mics. I like to have a ribbon uh-huh. and a tube, yep. which we've done. Yeah. And uh, so best of both worlds. Knowing the distance of, depending uh-huh. on the song, how much air should I give between? How do you how do you make that decision? I make it via the song. Yeah, and and I make it via how the the singer, how they're phrasing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so tell me about how the distance to a mic would affect something like that. Well, it's going to go in milliseconds. Yeah, as we know, you know. But if somebody's really camping out and singing the lyric behind the. If they're if that lyric and where they're phrasing is at the back, you, you know you'll want to physically move away from the mic. Yeah, I will a lot of times because my note shouldn't be up front. You right, know? it's going to push. Yeah, it's going to push that. But I feel like we all have the same heartbeat. You know, Jay and, and Jim and myself. I feel like our heartbeats are the same. Yeah, you know it has to be. So I don't necessarily question that. Uh huh. But from singer to singer. You know, Robert, on the Raising Sand stuff, Robert's coming from, from the rock world. Yeah. And, of course, Zeppelin, you know, and that stuff was just, I mean, how can you define that? I mean, it's obviously rock and roll, but it's also punk rock. It's, yeah. It's everything. It's rockabilly. It's yeah. country music. Yeah. You know, it's blues. It's all in there. You know, and then Allison coming from the bluegrass world, you know, that's the phrasing. Or I'll be gone. All right, fair listeners and good folks and music nerds, that is the end of part one with Dennis Crouch. Sorry to cut it off kind of mid-thought there, but we really didn't stop yapping for a good few hours, so this seemed like kind of a halfway point and uh, before he picked up his bass, um, so that's going to happen next week. We'll be back one week from today on Wednesday to have episode number two, or part two of the Dennis Crouch interview, and he will be uh, playing his bass and also talking more about his amazing history with sessions and gigs and whatnot. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then.
Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers